welcome back as we continue in our series, Strong. We are in the middle of a series called Strong, looking at courage over fear, examining the life of Joshua as he journeys alongside God, leading the people of Israel, and what it means to have courage, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of danger ahead, how Joshua has courage as he follows after the Lord. And so it's my hope that we can learn from Joshua how to be strong, how to have courage even when we're faced with fear, even when we're in the midst of troubling times, even when there's darkness all around us or unknown things ahead of us, how we too can have courage in those times by placing our trust in the Lord, by watching God move for us. And so we're seeking to learn that through looking at the life of Joshua today. If you would pray with me, though, as we get started. Gracious God, thank you for the opportunity to open up your word together today. Lord, we thank you for Joshua, for a man who sought to live following after your lead, who sought to live with obedience at all times. So Lord, help us to learn from these words that you have preserved, these words that your Holy Spirit instructed to be written down, and you have sustained and kept for us until this day when we can read them together. And so Lord, may we not take lightly the words that you have given us in Scripture, but may we allow them to shape our lives, to shape our worldview, and to shape our pursuit of you, so that we will become more and more like you, Jesus. So Lord, as we open up your word today, may you give us soft hearts and open ears to hear what you have to say. May nothing that I say today get in the way of what you wish to declare, Lord, but may you be glorified. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many people here are familiar with the name William Wilberforce, but William Wilberforce was a man who lived back in England who helped abolish slavery. And he fought this fight that was a difficult fight. He gave most of his life to try to see slavery abolished in the British Empire. In fact, it was just three days before he died that this actually happened. But he worked continuously, even in the midst of opposition, for this endeavor. And John Wesley once wrote to him, and this is what John Wesley said from his deathbed when he wrote to William Wilberforce. He said, Unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is a scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you for this very thing, you'll be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? All, are all of them together stronger than God? Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. If God has given you a task, be not weary in doing it well. John Wesley wanted to encourage William Wilberforce that if the task at hand that he felt so strongly, that he felt a deep conviction in his heart, to give his life to, was from God, then he was not to be discouraged in the face of opposition because the Lord would sustain him. The Lord would move as he was moving. The beauty of this encouragement that Wesley gave Wilberforce is that Wilberforce was indeed on God's side. That God eventually moved through his efforts to see the abolishment of slavery in most of the British Empire. Sometimes, We find ourselves in situations like Wilberforce where we wonder how could we possibly accomplish 
what it is that God is calling us to do. We perhaps have a feeling or a sense that God has laid something upon our hearts, and yet we wonder, how could we accomplish it? And these may be grand tasks that you've never shared with someone, or they may be things as simple as figuring out how we can raise kids or grandkids to be God-fearing in the midst of the culture that we currently live in. How we can faithfully live out our years here on earth, continuing to walk faithfully with the Lord. How we can continue to resist temptations that come our way. How we can afford the cost of living in our area in this day and age. Or how we, as a church, can continue to reach the lost and to see people come to Christ and to grow. These questions sometimes may feel overwhelming. And perhaps you've found yourself in a situation like these where you know that the outcome cannot happen outside of God's moving. Well, let me encourage you that this is the perfect spot to be in. When you find yourself in a position where nothing can truly happen unless God moves, that is a beautiful spot to be in. A.W. Tozer has a quote, a brilliant quote, where he says, God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity that we plan only the things that we can do by ourselves. You see, God continually, time and time again in Scripture, we see him do the impossible through people who you would never expect would be able to do what is accomplished. And today's text in Joshua will encourage us to remember that's not by our strength that we can accomplish these things. But as we will see through the life of Joshua and Israel, the ways in which God moves are by his might alone, by his will alone, and by his power alone. So let's take a look together by turning to Joshua chapter 6 this morning. We're going to be reading Joshua chapter 6. But before we get to our text, starting in verse 15, I want to share with you a little bit of what's happening in the beginning of chapter 6. So we had talked previous weeks about how the Lord is moving Israel towards Jericho to take over and enter into the promised land. And so the Lord here at the beginning of chapter 6 has told Joshua that he is about to give both Joshua and Israel Jericho. And he gives them an instruction as to how this is going to happen. And it's not at all what you would expect. You see, one would expect if they're getting ready to battle that they would start sharpening their axes and their swords, that they would be gathering their battle plan, figuring out how to attack and how to allocate their troops best to defeat Jericho. And yet God instructs them that they are to gather their army together, they are to set out to go to Jericho, and they are to march around the city one time. No voices, no one's supposed to be talking or shouting or making a battle cry. Just march silently around Jericho one time and then go back to camp. And then the next day, do it again. And the next day, and the next day, for six days straight, Israel is to march around Jericho one time each day in silence. And then on the seventh day, God tells them that they are to march around the city seven times and then to blow their trumpets and their horns of the priests, and the people are to shout out in loud voices, and then to watch what the Lord is going to do as he will crumble the walls of Jericho. So this is what Joshua has told in the beginning of chapter 6. The Lord has given him these instructions, and so Israel starts to obey these instructions by going out each day and walking around the city in silence as they're supposed to. They are being obedient to God's instructions. 
And that's where we're going to pick up in Joshua chapter 6, verse 15. It says, On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from these things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted uh, them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. And that is the text for this morning. There is a lot in here today that we're going to examine. A lot of really wonderful aspects and some challenging aspects for us to work through. So we're going to go through it verse by verse and see what we can learn. So starting in verse 15. It tells us on the seventh day that they rose early. And there's an importance here that's the seventh day. The seventh day would be the Lord's day. It would be that day dedicated to the Lord. It would also be the number that we see throughout Scripture used as the Lord's number, number seven, which is a sign of completeness. So there's a completeness that has occurred as Israel has been obedient these six days. And as you're going to see the completeness of the Lord's word to them, of how he's going to move in Jericho. And so early, they rose early, and at the dawn of the day, they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. Marching around the city of Jericho, that's an important aspect because during this biblical era, this was seen as a declaration of one laying claim to the city. So God is laying claim to Jericho by having Israel march around the city each day. And finally, on the seventh day, seven times. But notice the obedience of Israel here. I mean, how beautiful is it that even though Israel's given this instruction, that doesn't make much sense. They're to just march around the city. That's how God wants them to approach battle with Jericho. And yet, Israel doesn't question. We don't see Joshua say, well, but God, you want us to march around the city. When are we going to attack? When are we going to go into battle, Lord? Or, or when do we actually rally our troops, and attack Jericho. No, Israel is just obedient. They march, and they march, and they march, being faithful to the Lord and to His instructions, and showing in this obedience their trust in God's instructions, in God's ways. Verse 16 tells us, at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. So the trumpets are blown and the people shout out of a confidence in the Lord. Their confidence is that the Lord is faithful to his word. We've seen time and time again in the lives of the Israelites as they've been led out of Egypt, as God has watched out for them, as he's provided with them, 
even things as simple as their daily bread and as great as battles won against enemies, that the Lord has been faithful, that he has provided, and when he has given them a word, it has come true. He has fulfilled his word. So they've been told that this is what they are to do to take Jericho, and as they get in place and as they march around the city and as it comes time to blow the horns, the people shout, trusting the Lord's words, trusting that he will move in the way that he has said he would and placing their confidence in the Lord alone. This conquest of Jericho did not come by the army of Israel's might. It came solely through the Lord's provision, through his help and through Israel's obedience to his command. What a beautiful reminder for us as we follow the Lord, as it can become so easy for us to get caught up in what we can do, in what things we can do by our own strength or our own power, in how we can try to fight our sin or how we can try to make ourselves better or more holy, and the reality is we can't. We will fall short if we try to do any of these things by our own strength, by our own might, and by our own power. And yet what we can learn from Israel here is that we can accomplish great things when we trust in God's strength, in God's power, and when we walk in obedience to him. Picking up in verse 17, this is where it starts to get a little bit challenging. 17 says, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So this word devoted here, this idea of being set apart. So what is happening here is that the Lord is saying that everything should be set apart for the Lord. Some things will be set apart for the Lord's treasury and some things are set apart for destruction. Why would the Lord call for this entire city to be devoted to destruction? And this is an issue that people have, especially people who don't believe in God or who don't follow God or even those of us who do follow God. I remember a couple years back when we did the Bible reading challenge and I talked with someone in our church who said, it's been so good to read through scripture that I haven't read before. But wow, I read through the Old Testament and I was caught off guard by all the destruction and the killing and how God would command Israel to wipe out entire cities. And so people have struggled for, for decades, for years, wrestling with this concept of how can we have a loving, good, just God who tells Joshua and the Israelites to go in and completely destroy every living being in a city. Isn't that just genocide? Can we really follow a God who commands his people to commit genocide? And yet, there is so much more going on in this era and in the text and in understanding of what would have occurred in this situation than just a simple, blatant, God-demands-destruction of all lives. And if we read throughout Scripture, we also get a glimpse of the character of God that we can trust that God's character is good, that God is a God who loves those who he created, who desires that all would be saved and come to him. So we know that God is not operating without grace. Let's look a little bit more at what happens here. So the Lord calls for the city of Jericho to be devoted to destruction. The New Bible Commentary says, First and foremost, it is not an act of mindless violence, but rather it is the Lord seeking to prevent spiritual 
that the people of Israel would not be misled by these other people is the idea here. Think about Israel's journey as they've left Egypt. When they are loyal to God, when they are walking in his ways, he provides for them. And yet when they are disobedient, when they stray from God's instructions and God's ways, they're punished. The destruction here is meant to ensure that the people of Israel would not be led to disobedience and astray from the Lord to worship false Canaanite gods. You see, people forget when we read these texts that the people of Canaan were worshiping false gods. They were a city that was devoted to false gods. They were not seeking after the Lord. They were not seeking to walk in the way of the one true God. They were a city full of sin and false idols. If one looks forward in Israel's history to the book of Judges, we actually get a glimpse of what happens when Israel does not insist upon destruction. The people of Israel end up worshiping false Canaanite gods and being punished by the Lord as a result. When they don't destroy those whom they attack, who they take over, and those influences come into the people of Israel and lead them astray. There's also an element that's talked about a lot in different commentaries that Jericho would have been a military outpost, that it would have been a city that was on the edge to protect other cities, and so it would have been a smaller city than we often envision, which would make sense when we think about Israel walking around a city seven times, that it couldn't have been a massive city for them to accomplish that in one day. And that it would have made sense with what's talked about with the city and who is there, and even having someone like Rahab as a prostitute being there in that military outpost. So there's a lot of debate and discussion about what was Jericho. Was it a military outpost that would have been mostly military men? Or was this a city that was filled with kids and families and was just like a normal Jerusalem city? And when I read through the text, when I think about it, I would tend to lean towards it probably being a military outpost with what we know about it and what the commentaries suggest about it. But in addition to these reasons to help us understand more clearly what God is doing here with Israel, I want to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 20. I want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 20, and we're just going to be reading verses 10 through 18. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 20. These are instructions that Israel is being given. So these are the laws that God has given Israel concerning warfare. And it's easy for us to just think, okay, God has told Joshua to commit this whole city to destruction and to forget that the Lord is very intentional with how he moves. And the Lord has given Israel laws for how they are to live, how they are to act, even how they are to go to war. So that's what we're going to be looking at in Deuteronomy chapter 20, starting in verse 10. It says, When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. So God is giving an opportunity here when Israel goes to attack a city, that first and foremost, before they just attack and wipe out an entire people, they are to offer peace. Now, we don't read about that in the account of Jericho, but knowing that Joshua was obedient to the law, that Joshua sought to follow the Lord's instructions, we see him continually seek to live in obedience to the law, we can know that Joshua would have obeyed this law that was given in Deuteronomy as well. It says in verse 12, But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. 
So if they're not willing to accept your terms of peace, then it is okay to attack it. And in verse 13, when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all of its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. You shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you for inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. And then it gives us here in verse 18 a picture of why God instructs this, of why it's so important that Israel follow God's decree. It says in verse 18, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. You see, God's priority is to keep his people holy. That's the purpose of the law, is God is trying to help his people pursue holiness, pursue him. And if they intermingle with other gods, with other nations who are not in a pursuit of the Lord God, they're going to find themselves swayed away from God. When Israel allows herself to intermingle with false gods and people who are pursuing sin in this way and a life pursuing false gods, the result is more often than not a stumbling of Israel. And with that stumbling often comes a loss of life of Israel, destruction, and pulling further apart from God. The Lord isn't trying to do anything but protect Israel and continue in his pursuit of helping Israel to be holy and set apart as a nation who is God's chosen people. The bigger idea here is not violence. It is the pursuit of the Lord. It's a spiritual purity that the Lord wants for Israel and their faithfulness to him. In the midst, though, of this verse of destruction that we have to wrestle through, we also get a picture of God's grace. Because what we see in verse 17 is that Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live. So in the midst of God saying, destroy everything that lives in the city, including all the livestock, all the men and women, but save Rahab. Now, why does Rahab get saved? Well, we know from previous chapters, and as we discussed a couple weeks ago, that part of why Rahab gets saved is because she was willing to save the spies when they were in Jericho spying out the land. But with her saving the spies, she also made a declaration of who God was. She placed her faith and her hopes in salvation in the Lord God, the one and only God. So that is why Rahab is saved. And I believe that if there were others in Canaan, who would have professed the same way, who if when Israel would have offered peace, would have turned to God and would have mourned and said, we are wrong, we submit ourselves to the Lord God, the one and only, I believe that more would have been saved. Because we know that to be the character of God. We know that to be truth about who God is. That he saves those who call upon his name. That he never pushes those aside who call upon his name, but he saves them. And that's why we see Rahab saved. And that's a beautiful picture of God's grace here in the midst of this verse. Well, verse 18 continues in the instructions to Israel, telling them, But you, 
Keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of de- for destruction and bring trouble upon it. This is a warning given to Israel that as they attack, let them not be tempted to ignore the instructions of the Lord, to take stuff that they're not supposed to take, to bring it back to Israel's camp and thus bring about destruction upon the camp. The warning is that if they keep these items, if they disobey the Lord, that this will bring destruction upon Israel's camp. And we see this elsewhere in Scripture as people choose to disobey the Lord, as they plunder cities, as they attack and are told similar instructions, and yet people take stuff back. Or people don't kill kings. And the repercussions are great. The warning against this is seen again in Joshua 23, verse 11 through 13, when Joshua charges the leaders of Israel and says, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnants of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and a thorn in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. You see, God has a purpose and a plan. And that purpose and plan is not for Israel to intermix with these nations who are worshiping false gods, who are practicing sinful practices, who are outside of the nation of Israel. And yet we see people ignore these instructions We even see kings ignore these instructions in Israel's future. And we see them be pulled away from God. We see them start to be tempted in different ways. And we see them walk further away from the Lord their God. And it always leads to destruction. It always leads to sin. You see, Israel is to seek to remain as close to the Lord as they can. They are his people, his chosen people set apart, and so they are to not intermingle with these that are not chosen. But in verse 19, it tells us, all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So even though all the people, all the livestock is to be done away with and destroyed, these precious metals are to be gathered together. They're considered holy to the Lord, and they are to be placed into the treasury of the Lord. The treasury of the Lord would have been the temple, which at the time was a portable temple. It was a portable sanctuary that Israel would take with them when they moved. We've not yet seen the building of the temple dedicated to the Lord. So these treasures would have been taken in and placed into the temple of the Lord. And this is part of the aspect of the Lord calling for things to be set apart for him. Some things set apart for destruction, some things set apart as holy for him. And I love when you think about what's happening here. God is taking something that was probably used for evil, that was used by a nation, that was not following after God, and he uses it and repurposes it to be used in his temple. What a beautiful picture of what God does time and time again, even with our lives, as he takes that which is broken and sinful And he repurposes it for that which is holy and good as we pursue after him. Well, the text continues in verse 20, showing us what happens as people of Israel are faithful to the Lord's instructions. So they've walked around the city seven times, and here's the culmination of the attack on Jericho. So the people shouted, 
and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Wow. What a battle plan. What a way to attack a city. I know that the people of Jericho had feared God and the people of Israel because of the mighty works they had heard about and seen, but they probably never saw this coming. They probably never thought as people of Israel walked around the city seven times and start shouting that all of a sudden their walls would just collapse. And yet that is what God does here. The great walls of Jericho fall down flat, not because of Israel, not because their voices were so loud that they caused an earthquake that reverberated and broke the wall, but because God worked in the miraculous here. Because God in His might, as only He can, chose to use this way to bring about the destruction of the city. And the people of Israel are able to go straight into the city. You see, we can be fearless in our obedience because we know that the outcome relies on God, not on our own abilities. And that's what we see here with the people of Israel is there is a fearless obedience that they operate under as they pursue after God, as they follow His instructions. Not because the outcome relies upon them, but it relies upon God. And our text it wraps up today with verse 21, which tells us, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. This inclusion of even the livestock being devoted to destruction illustrates the fact that the Lord will continue to provide for Israel. They don't need to hoard the livestock so that they have enough to eat because God will provide for them. He wants them to continue to be dependent upon him and his provision. They don't need to hoard from the nations they conquer. Rather, they must continue to trust in the Lord's provision for them. The aspects of our text today can be hard to wrestle through. And yet, there are so many important aspects here. If these are things that you struggle with, these questions of Israel attacking foreign nations, there are some great resources out there, some great books that speak more in depth to these topics that I can recommend to you. But we don't have time this morning to go into as great of detail as those books do. But the question for us today that we are left with is what does this mean for us? For us here as we live in Springfield, as we live in this day and age, how do we take this story of Israel attacking Jericho and how do we apply it to our lives today? Well, I think the first application that we can know is that the Lord's ways are not our ways. We see that here in the text today. In Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 states, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, God is infinite. He's infinite in his wisdom, and yet we are finite. We are limited in our knowledge, in our understanding, and God is not. God knows all, God understands all, and we don't. And so we must recognize that God has this ability that we don't have, that he has an understanding that we don't have, and that his ways are not always our ways. Famed New Testament scholar Rudolf Boltman captures the meaning of this text so well when he says, Faith is the abandonment of man's own security and the readiness to find security only in the unseen beyond, in God. 
This means that faith is security where no security can be seen. It is, as Martin Luther said, the readiness to enter confidently into the darkness of the future. You see, there is a beauty in trusting God's ways, in putting our faith in Him and knowing that He knows best. It can be easy for us to assume that our ways are best, and yet Scripture continually reminds us that this is not true, that God is the one in control, that His ways are best. And when we take this attitude on, when we seek to live in this way, it enables us to be fearless in our obedience because we know that the outcome relies on God, not on our own abilities. The second way that we can apply this to our lives is to recognize that God always provides, that we can trust in his provision. And we see this application present throughout the book of Joshua, throughout our text today, that God provides to those who are faithful to him. The Lord protects Israel from danger time and time again, provides both their physical needs in food and other manners, as well as their spiritual needs. The Lord is with Israel, and when they are faithful to him, he continues to provide for them. The Lord provides in the most important way to those who are faithful to him, and that is his grace, the grace that he extends to us in Jesus Christ. That Jesus came and died upon the cross, took our sins upon him so that we may experience life, so that we may experience a freedom from our sin, and that we may find salvation in Jesus Christ alone. We get a glimpse of this in the life of Rahab, as Rahab experiences that grace of God, pulling her out of her life of sin and placing her as a part of Israel, grafting her in the community of Israel, and not just grafting her into the community of Israel, but even using her to be a part of the family line that leads to Jesus, our Lord and Savior. What a beautiful aspect of God's grace. What a beautiful aspect of God's provision for Rahab, for Israel, and for us today. I love the story that Charles Spurgeon tells of his grandfather, James Spurgeon, and his faith in God. You see, James had a large family, and yet he had a very small income. But he loved the Lord, and he would not give up on preaching the gospel for anything. One day, the cow on which the family relied on for milk suddenly died. And James Spurgeon's wife was greatly concerned, but James Spurgeon said, God said that he would provide, and I believe he could send us 50 cows if he pleased. On that same day, a group met in London, a group that James Spurgeon did not know. And they wanted to help the needs of poor pastors in the area, and so they raised a large sum of money. And they began sending it to different pastors in need to help with their needs for their families. And when they reached the end of their list, there was still five pounds left. One man suggested sending it to James Spurgeon, and another said, No, let's not just send five pounds, let me add five more to go with it. Others joined in, and the day after his cow died, James Spurgeon received 20 pounds in the mail. You see, he knew that if he was faithful to walk with God, to follow his commands, to seek after him that the Lord would provide. And you too can trust God to keep his promises, to provide for your needs. So keep your eyes fixed upon him. Trust his provisions. They won't always look like you expect. There will be times where you think that the Lord's provision would equate this. And yet God says, no, I'm going to provide in this way but I still provide. 
which takes us right back to that first point, that the Lord's ways are not our ways, but he knows best what we need, and he will provide for our needs when we walk with him. Well, the last application this morning is that we can look at this text and see that we are to live with an expectant faith. We are to live lives that have an expectation of God to show up, to answer prayers, to move in mighty ways. I love this illustration that Christian Scotsman gives of what it looks like to live with an expectant faith. He said that there had been drought for weeks in America, and the farmers had arranged to gather in a small prairie church to pray that the Lord would bring an end to the drought and that God would bring rain. These men of God that were there were so resolved to petition the Lord Almighty that he would send rain. And when that day came, the Sabbath dawn on which their little church would have public prayer for rain, the minister, a good man, was astonished that cloudless summer morning to see on the way to church one of the smallest of his Sabbath school scholars carrying a big family umbrella. Oh, what a size it was, and yet the morning was hot and blistering. There was no sign of rain that little heart had heard the invitation given to prayer to be made for rain. In the simplicity of her faith, she came prepared to see an answer to that prayer. The minister had no umbrella. He was dressed in a summer costume, it said. And he patted the little girl on her head, and he thought that in her childhood innocence, though in reality, it was a superior faith that she had in the Lord showing up. She had not made a mistake The service proceeded, the prayers ascended, and the clouds started to gather up on the horizon and started to roll in. The lightning started to flash and the torrents of rain poured down on the roof of that prairie church. The little girl has the best of it. The minister was glad to go home under the little girl's despised umbrella. And as she sheltered the pastor in his summer costume, it makes you realize that she had lived with an expectant faith says many times we take the attitude of the pastor, laughing at someone for carrying a big umbrella in a time of drought. And yet Christian Scotsman says, pray on though the skies be as brass. Pray on in times of trouble. O thou that hearest prayer, it is true. It is true about God and all flesh shall come to him that heareth prayer. You see, to live with expectant prayer To live with expectant faith as we pursue after Jesus is something that we must seek to practice. To not pray for something, not really believing in an answer. To not come to worship, not really expecting to enter into the Lord's presence. But take note of how in our text today, Joshua and the people of Israel showed up with an expectation that the Lord would answer their call. That as they proclaimed, their shouts and their trumpets blasted, that their expectant faith led them to believe that God would be faithful to his word and that those walls would come tumbling down. See, Joshua shows us what it looks like to be obedient to the Lord, even when it is a silly thing on the outside, even when it seems like a silly strategy for battle to trust God's leading, to trust that God is in charge. So we can be fearless in our obedience today because we know that the outcome relies on God, not on our own abilities. 
So may we, as followers of Jesus, pursue walking in the path of Jesus, the only one who can save. Not by our strength or our abilities. May we not become distracted by those who seek to pull us away from the way of the Lord or who seek to tell us that prayer doesn't work. But may we cement our beliefs in who God is, in his faithfulness that we have seen and experienced in the person of Jesus Christ and in the fact that in him alone we are saved. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for the Israelites' faithfulness, even when it didn't make sense, for their example of obedience that we have here in this text this morning. So Lord, may you help us to live obediently to you. May you help us, Lord, to pursue following you no matter what the cost. Lord, that we would trust your leadings. And Lord, that we would be expectant of you moving when you say you would. Lord, deepen our faith, deepen our convictions in what you've called us to do and how you've called us to live out our faith today. And Lord, we expect you to move. And we look forward to seeing you move here in our midst as you deepen our faith in you, as we become more and more like you, and as our church seeks to further your kingdom here in our community. May it be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.